It happened during our last episode. So we were talking about hybrid work with Helen Cup from Slack's Future Forum. In the middle of the conversation, she drops a brand new term on us. The risk of the remote second class. A remote second class. A whole category of workers who are treated worse than their colleagues who choose to go into the office. Now, we've talked about officism in a previous episode, where remote workers face bias within their teams and are excluded from opportunities to collaborate and advance in the same way as their office compadres do. But a remote second class, that, that implies something way bigger. A new systemic inequality, one possibly sanctioned by the employer who seeks to benefit by exploiting those who work away from the office. Now, if that sounds weirdly regressive, stop and consider. During the early days of the pandemic, when Mark Zuckerberg told the employees of Facebook that they could go fully remote if they wanted, it came with an asterisk, which was... Anyone who chose to move to a state with a lower cost of living than San Francisco would have to take a pay cut. Now, do you need more proof? Well, fine. Listen to this comment from Jack Kelly, founder of WeCruiter, senior contributor to Forbes, and a future guest on this podcast. There was a study from SHRM, the largest HR group. They surveyed managers and workers. And the managers, and I can't believe they put this out because it's not complimentary, that the managers basically say, and I'm not exaggerating, oh, we forget about the remote workers. So the remote second class. Looks like Helen Cup might be right, and this could be a thing. And to discuss what we do about it, we've brought on Anita Woolley. She's an associate professor of organizational behavior and theory at Carnegie Mellon University's Tepper School of Business. Anita joins us at the Nexus. I would love to start by hearing from you what, to your mind, a remote second class happens to be. I think there have been a variety of, of terms used for people who end up falling into a category of work that ends up being less powerful, has less of a voice. I mean, sometimes it's been called the pink collar workforce. It's been called, you know, like various things like that, right? It could be that they're systematically then sort of put into a work situation where they aren't seen as often, they're not included in conversations as often, they're not represented, their interests are not represented. And then gradually, because of just human nature, they are put at a disadvantage. And so it would be very easy then for them to become a second class. Going to hybrid work is one step, but what perhaps are organizations not doing that might prevent a remote second class within their business? Organizations where they're still set up primarily or to prioritize work that is being done face-to-face so that anybody who is not working in that setting is kind of second best or at a disadvantage. And so the kinds of things that are going on are things like the ways that people are evaluated. Your job evaluation is based on subjective impressions, FaceTime with the boss, and just generally, you know, these things that are hard to create if you're not physically there. And so you're at a disadvantage relative to the people who are there more, where information sharing is also primarily done in this 
informal, unstructured, undocumented way so that if you're not there to overhear things, then there are just things you don't know about. And then decision-making is also done um, in, a, in a less sort of structured, systematic, transparent way. Decisions will happen in sort of a haphazard way. And again, being there, being around when something is discussed means that you give input and your concerns are going to end up being prioritized, whereas the folks who aren't there to give input, obviously what they're concerned about won't be incorporated. And so in essence, it's the organizations that really are still trying to operate in a way that they could prior to the pandemic if everybody was in the office. Although truth be told, even then it wasn't that great because those are the organizations who often um, also have other kinds of issues with equity and inclusion. I'm wondering if you see any risks for an organization who does nothing to prevent a remote second class from emerging within their employee population. I certainly hope that this will not play out well for those organizations. I do think it is a risk if they don't really adopt the work practices that will make that form of work more productive. Already we have a tightening labor market and that is just going to get worse, especially now with it being so easy for people to share information about these things with each other. Over time, those organizations that don't create a work environment that is conducive to this flexibility without people having to take a step back in terms of their career and their progress, those organizations are gonna be less desirable to work for. And the organizations that really set things up well where people can have a fulfilling career while they choose where they're going to live and, and work from and they feel like they're being treated fairly and equitably, those organizations are very likely to have an advantage in the workforce and to be able to hire just basically anybody in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it would seem to me that it would be an advantage to set up your organization in such a way that would be more equitable. I mentioned Slack's future form and they did a survey that discovered that 67% of BIPOC workers in the survey wanted to stay remote, presumably to sort of lessen the threat of microaggressions in an office workplace. But I also Mm -hmm. wonder if by choosing to work remotely, they aren't exposing themselves to other kinds of oppression or challenges. Again, it really will depend on the kinds of systems an employer has in place for how decisions are made and information is shared. And so the organizations that are being sincere about having a remote work or a hybrid work policy, you'll see the leaders doing that as well. And as soon as that happens, then it tends to be the case that routines and systems get set up so that people truly can be included in decision-making, even if they're not physically there. I'm wondering if there's anything else to your mind that could be done to help employers make that model work better. And, and, and lessen the likelihood of remote second class. A big part of this, and I mentioned it earlier in this conversation too, relates to how people are evaluated. It's pretty fundamental, honestly, to how an organization is structured. You know, am I evaluated based on uh, what I produce, the value I create, the quality of what I do? Are there 
concrete measures, you know, used so that I can demonstrate these things, even if I'm not there in person. Is this done fairly, transparently, consistently across the organization? Because in the absence of those things, that's where we see a lot of this fall apart, right? So even now, as we hear about all of the burnout with the pandemic, a lot of that can be traced back to the fact that employees aren't sure what is going to affect their future. You know, what is going to affect their evaluation and their ability to progress in their career. And so whenever you're worried about if you're not doing enough, then you just try to do more. Right. And that is the surest path to burnout. The organizations that are really trying to make this work need to have these systems so that people feel like they know on what basis they're being evaluated. And it's not a subjective political FaceTime kind of process. I think that's that's one very important thing. Recently, I put together this lecture called Why Face-to-Face Interaction Isn't Really All That Great. (laughs) Because there are all kinds of things we do in group discussions, group decision-making, even brainstorming when we're all together, co-located, working synchronously, that actually undermine the outcomes that we're seeking to achieve. We make bad decisions, we bias each other, we're less creative if we're brainstorming in that way. And it turns out that a lot of the hybrid methods uh, actually improve the quality of what groups produce. Mm -hmm. Adopting the remote first mindset or even default to asynchronous, right? Don't try to do everything in live meetings, for example. I think the organizations that start to really rethink their work and find better ways to do things, those are the organizations that are actually going to come out of this thriving. I'm a big fan of remote working. I just sort of developed a very simple metric for the work, which was so long as it's on time, it's of a standard that I consider appropriate and you're available to answer questions for our client whenever they ask them. That was the only three things I really needed from people and it seemed to work fine. We've known, I think, in psychology for a while that one thing that breeds loyalty, whether you're talking about an employee or a customer or in many other contexts, is, you know, if I feel like you care about my needs, you are taking care of me, that I'm important to you, then I will be more loyal to you. And one related point I would make is how to build culture and how to build relationships and how to mentor people and all the stuff that goes on when you're all in the same building together. Whenever I hear that and I kind of dig into it with them, we pretty quickly come up with ways that you can do those things if you're intentional and creative about it. So I don't think there's any reason why, for example, an organization can't have a culture if they don't have a building. Just to touch on that a little bit, Anita, you mentioned finding novel ways to mentor someone, even if it's remotely. I'm wondering if there is anything that you've encountered that seems to be rather effective in that regard. 
One of the benefits of having kind of a hybrid or remote environment is employees could presumably have access to then a wide variety of mentors, right? Because it would be a matter of connecting with anyone else who has access to the same, you know, whatever communications platform. But it's about also being intentional about it, right? And so I think the organizations that are really leaning into that aspect are making a more intentional effort to connect people, you know, even set the expectation, have people allocate work hours, you know, that they spend connecting with, mentoring with, coaching, either peer coaching or even connecting people in parts of the organization where you don't know anybody to try to enhance those cross-cutting connections and relationships in different parts of the organization. There's, you know, lots of evidence. We've even done some research showing that people can meet strangers on video conference and develop a pretty meaningful connection if they have a kind of shared focus around yeah. some issues that they care about. Being deliberate in how you approach any of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Anita, you've been a delightful guest. I want to thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. Are you gearing up to take your company hybrid and you don't know how to prepare your people for it? Admittedly, it's a big decision, but not to worry. If you are facing the hybrid question, then let Nexus help. We've been supporting clients for over two decades with novel solutions and strategies, and we can do the same for you. Find us at nexuscommunications.com. That's N-E-X-U-S communications.com. And if you like what you heard on this podcast today, shout it from the rooftops, tell your friends, or better still, rate us. That would be awesome. Feel free to comment about us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to consume your favorite episodes. The Nexus is produced by Alexa Paveo and Mertz Jaffer. I'm Chris Nelson. Thanks for listening.